Welcome to the Alienist Angel of Darkness recap podcast. My name is Alex, and I have not read Caleb Carr's The Angel of Darkness. And my name is Nick, and have read The Angel of Darkness. Today we will be discussing Season 2, Episode 6 of the TNT series titled Memento Mori. While we will not be spoiling any of the book and by extension any future plotlines of the show, we will be discussing the details through Season 2, Episode 6, so pause this and go catch up before you listen to the rest of the episode. That's right, we're talking about Episode 6 here. If you missed the Episode 5 recap, please go back in the feed and download that one before you listen to this Please one. go back. Yes. It was such a good one. It was a great one. It was a great one. You can find more episodes of our podcast at TheAlienist.tv, and you can send feedback to feedback at TheAlienist.tv to tell us what you think of our podcast. If you enjoy this show or any other show on the Midwest Podcast Network, please, please, please consider heading over to mpn.bz slash Patreon and pledge as little as a dollar a month to make our network even better. Special thanks to Jason K. and Tom Z. who have pledged at the level of $10 per month. Speaking of other shows on the Midwest Podcast Network, check out Horror Movie Yearbook this Friday with their Vampire Movie Bracket episode, as well as the Midwest Game Nerds Podcast on Monday, where we will discuss Carrion and Grounded. Nick, we got some uh, fan art, uh, as requested, uh, from Caleb on Twitter. His, his handle is at 7 underscore is underscore lucky. Uh, some great pictures of Daniel Bruhl as as a vampire. I think it's very mm-hmm. convincing, and uh, I'm ready for it. <laughs> Daniel Bruhl as Dracula, or whatever vampire he would like to be. So we've manifested it into the world, and uh, and it should happen. And it is glorious. He did. He did say uh, in in his reply to me. Uh, I think y'all are onto something about Daniel. I think that other request is above my pay grade, though. I don't think it is. I think now that you have this um representative frame of of john moore laying in a bed uh with some tasteful side ass i think you could do it i believe in you (laughs) caleb and and i think you should so please uh but anyway thank you caleb for spending your time photoshopping things for us yeah Uh, it was awesome it it brings us great uh uh great pleasure and, and we think it's great all right nick shall we get on with the recap um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, hold on, let me, because there was something I wanted to talk about in episode five, and I'm going to talk about it in this one. Uh, So I had said that I abandoned trying to keep up with the show while I was reading the book. Yeah. I gave it another, I did give it a valiant effort, but the other day I read, I sat and read probably like, I don't know, like 45 pages or something. And I like looked at where I was in the story and I looked at the length of the book and I was like, there's no way, like, <laughs> there's just no way for me to do it. Yeah. Uh, because I had still barely gotten through like the, like Laszlo still isn't having even shown up in the book yet. Mm. So that's where I'm at. Uh, cause he's got a lot going on. No, he just did. I'm sorry. He like just did. So, uh, what I did instead, I knew this existed, but I had to go digging. There is a website and I don't know if Alex has talked about this or not. It's called 17thstreet.net. Mm. And it is it is the numbers, the numer- numerals, 17 and then thstreet.net. And it is a fan site all about Caleb Carr and the Alienist books. I found this years ago before there was a show. Because I remember trying to, I don't, I don't know how, it was just through Google that I found it. Wait, um, wait. Google. Okay, go I was ahead. waiting for it. Okay, thank you. And uh, so they have a they it's a it's actually a pretty cool website. I'm I'm not really a person who necessarily like follows like fan sites or anything like that. But there's just 
isn't a lot out there about these books, so I thought it was crazy that it existed. But they have a tab for the Alienist books, and there is one for the Alienist that is plot, themes, and quiz. You can take a quiz about the book if you want. Hmm. There's a tab for characters. There's a tab for maps and locations. <clears throat> there's a tab for history. Uh, there's a, now a tab for the Alienist TV series, but there's one for the Angel of Darkness that's a plot and a quiz. And within there, there's a summary section that's just broad stroke summary of the book as well as critical reception. There's a plain text timeline and a quiz. The plain text timeline breaks down everything that happens in the book by the actual date. So it begins with June 20th, 1897, and that covers chapters two through six. And then it breaks it down continually by like uh, the next day, June 21st, chapters six through eight, June 22nd, chapters nine through 10, and on and on and on. And it sums it up really well. It gives you like a relatively detailed description of what happens in each chapter. Uh, you can definitely read this whole thing and essentially get the whole story of the book. I don't recommend that. If you really want to experience the book, read it. Like it's obviously the only way. But I was like, okay, I need to at least be able to remember the major and somewhat minor plot beats in order to keep up with the sh my function on this show. And it was actually wonderful for that purpose. So uh, that resource is really cool. I think even just kind of poking around and checking it out and reading a little bit more about, you know, the both books, if you're interested, is pretty cool. But uh, that's what was able to help me correct myself with mm. the inclusion of Cecilia Bow, as well as some other things that are going on. But uh, this is a really cool resource, and it was a cool way for me to kind of brush up on... Uh, on what happens in the book. So if you uh, have read the first book and you wanted to, didn't want to reread it necessarily, but wanted to brush up in order to remember how the show runs parallel and deviates, you can do the same thing for the sequel book as well. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that I ever actually brought it up in season one, but I feel like I came across it a couple times when looking things up previously. Yeah, I think you mentioned it at some point. I just don't remember exactly when. Yeah. So, but no, it's, it's good. A good reminder. And, uh, and it sounds like a great place for people who need a little refresher on, on what's going on, uh, in the book as compared to the show. So another thing that's interesting is somewhere on the site, I can't find it now, but I did see it the other day when I was on it, uh, somewhere in relation to the angel of darkness, somebody commented on the website. It might've been in the summary and reception page no it's not there uh somewhere a fan had gone to this site and they had commented on how they felt about the sequel book and it was really funny because they were like th there were a few people that were like oh it was a great book like love the sequel there's one person in particular who had multiple like this is like an old school website where yeah. it's like leave your reply and it's like a big giant <laughs> you know text block somebody was saying that they didn't think the second book was nearly as successful in the first because they said it got so much bigger. It gets so much more over the top in some of the things that happen. They said they didn't like Stevie as the narrator. And they said they didn't like that. It essentially reduced more to comic relief and uh, basically being portrayed as a drunken <laughs> nobleman. And I thought that's exactly what he is though. Like even in the first book, the only difference is the first book is being told from his perspective. It's it's as though he's writing a book. Yeah. So, of course, he's going to portray himself better. And the second book is as though Stevie's writing a book. And, of course, Stevie's going to call Moore out for being – because he and Moore get into a fight that night when, when Stevie's an adult. Yeah. And Moore is being a drunken nobleman. So, that's how Stevie's going to write him. So, I thought that – 
this sort of lens that each book has is really interesting for how the characters are portrayed. It was something I had never that is thought really of cool. prior prior to this person complaining about the way Moore is portrayed. But I think that it what it and the only reason this is relevant to the show is I think Luke Evans does a great job playing both sides of it. And I, I even texted Alex a screen. Uh, I took a picture with my phone mm, of uh, mm-hmm. one of the chat or one page from the book and said, don't you just read this in Luke Evans voice? And uh, it was more just basically throwing his hands up in <laughs> exasperation at whatever they're doing. And nobody's answering his questions. So he's getting upset. And I think uh, that was really funny. And it actually sort of ties into my feelings on John, the John and Sarah dynamic. So when we're ready to jump into the recap. Yeah, no. I, ha- I do have relevant feelings. I think it's interesting because the John written story of the alienist is probably, like you said, a little more favorable to him. And it sounds like the Stevie one is going to be a little bit more, uh, not even that it's less favorable, but it's it's how Stevie sees John, right? Ex- so yep, it's exactly. almost like TV John can lie somewhere in the middle and be true to both of them, right? And, and yeah, because even John's John John's book, if we're going to treat John as though he were real and actually writing this, he he's kind of torn between his desire to portray the events as he felt them, but also his journalistic integrity to report them as they were. But his, he also is pretty harsh on himself for failing to save a lot of the kids that he interacts with in the book. Mm-hmm. Particularly Giorgio, I think, is the one that he befriends and, and ultimately can't save. Yeah. So he definitely doesn't spare himself there. So it's interesting to think about in the larger universe of it, how how these characters are writing it and how the events are happening. Their criticism, I do agree with 100%, though, is because it's told from Stevie's perspective, and he's often left out of the big adult moments, the book suffers for it 100%, undeniably. And I even said that in our first episode, yeah. I think, of this show, that you a lot of the good, juicy stuff that's happening, Stevie's not there for, so you miss out on it. Yeah, interesting. I'm to that to that uh, degree, I'm really glad that the show did not follow it, uh, f- did not present the story from Stevie's point of view, because it just wouldn't have been the same. I think what they're doing is completely appropriate, and even I would go so far as to say an improvement, for sure. Awesome. That's cool. That's good. Um, all right. Shall we get to the recap? Yes. In the teaser, Sarah and John share a tense afterglow where Sarah appears somewhat regretful of their actions. John appears willing to break his engagement with uh, with Violet, but Sarah thinks it's more complicated than that. Libby crosses the street to clean up her grazed neck uh, in a horse trough. A man tries to shoo her away, but just as she she's just as unhinged as ever. Um, the the great music and editing that we talked about in the last episode carries over to the beginning of this one. Just the way that. Yeah, the mood feels even in those moments of Sarah cleaning herself up and John, you know, getting getting himself back together and things of that nature. It just you feel the weight of what happened, right? And it's not even Sarah feels regretful about it, but John doesn't even recoil at that regret. I think is the more interesting thing of like he knows somewhere deep down it feels like he knows that what happened. He he's. It, I feel like it would be easy in any other story for the man to be like, "How could you doubt what just happened?" and be very offended by all of it. But the fact that John kind of stands there and takes it at face value and it's just kind of like, "I know where you're at, but hear me out about it." I think is a very interesting character beat. Yeah, John's John's been pretty beat to shit by the women in his life. 
at this point. I think so. My main sticking point with the John Sarah relationship, and this is sort of to Sue. I mean, to everybody, but also to Sue, <laughs> because Sue was like, I like it. And after I got done saying, I don't like it. I like it more now. Hmm. I'm on board with it. But my my apprehension comes from there. There's kind of this idea in the books that uh, people don't change much. You can't really change your true nature. You can't really change who you are deep inside. Um, people are certainly capable of change in like in smaller strokes and even big strokes if properly motivated, right? Yeah. But finding that motive, that motivation usually comes as a result of massive external things happening to you to make you realign your perspective. This is something that we're as a country and as a world dealing with now, right? Mm -hmm. Especially we were just talking about all the police reform and everything going on. We've had these massive external things happen uh, that are generating this change. John, the character of John Moore to me, and I don't think this is just in the books, but also kind of the show. I just think he's changing a lot and in ways that I don't know if I they can buy a hundred percent. Because if we look at John in season one, he's pretty, he's kind of damaged. He's dealing with some, with some shit. Like he's got some issues and he does improve, but this level of improvement is carrying really far. And from a storytelling perspective, it is really satisfying to see a character go, you know, from such a dark place to a relatively healthy place to, to feeling like he knows what he wants and being willing to earn it. But for the character of John Moore, it doesn't feel particularly authentic. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like he, he's mean, coming, he's coming to Sarah, like for all intents and purposes, a good man, like not just a better man than where he was, but like a good man. He does a bad thing, mm -hmm. but he does it for the woman he truly loves to kind of show her that he wants to be, he was his line. All I want to do is be worthy of you. He like yes. says later. Yeah. I think he means it. Yeah. And for the, for the show, like I'm willing to, I'm kind of, I'm willing to buy it. I'm like, okay, John is capable of this amount of change to give up his old life, to give up his old ways, and to to be a changed man. But I guess I am carrying a little bit of the book with me because the both books kind of posit this idea that you a leopard can't really change its spots. Like when you pick up with Stevie as an adult in the beginning of the second book, he's basically dying of lung cancer. Mm. Like he's got like a chronic cough that frequently results in blood and he basically says as he begins penning the book, like, I'm going to write this because in a year I might not be around to do it. And if Moore's not willing to tell this story, someone's got to do it. So Stevie's basically acknowledging that he even says in the book he's been smoking since he was five. So he's spent 30 years, essentially, all of his developmental years as well smoking. So he's dying, right? Yeah. But he won't stop smoking because he can't change who he is. The same way John can't help but get fired from every newspaper he works at in the book because he can't change who he is. And the same reason he can't stop drinking or gambling because he can't change who he is. The same reason Laszlo can't be accepted by society because he's a little rough around the edges and he also refuses to conform because he can't change who he is. The same reason Sarah can't work within the system, even if she's willing to like take shots from guys, but still be effective. She has to strike out on her own because she can't change who she is, right? Now, all these characters are this way. So, in the show, it's, it's like I said, on the one hand, I get it. It's it's satisfying as a viewer to watch a character go from point A to point B, but it doesn't necessarily feel as true with the subject matter. 
I think what you're saying all makes sense, but the weird thing to me is that, like, I think it's just such a fundamentally different John. It is. Like, first off, he was a a sketch artist, you know? I'm just kidding. That doesn't really matter. (laughs) But it it also does matter. But now he's a reporter. (laughs) Yeah, because he... He had upward mobility. Like, he went from being a sketch artist to being a lifestyle reporter to now being, like, a crime reporter or whatever he is. But, like, he's not really... Like, he's he's portrayed as a bit of a dope, but he's not really portrayed as, like, being a fuck-up, right? Yeah. Really, only the, the only real indication of a fuck-up that we have is that his last engagement was broken. And I forget how much detail we get about that situation... But it's kind of like the other interesting end to me is that John is now willing to put Violet in that position that he was once in because of Sarah, right? And and, and I think I'm also not convinced that this comes to that much of a head, right? Like, I, I don't really know that there's certainly something between John and Sarah, but I think there's still room for Sarah to kind of be like, look, that was great, but, you know, yeah, we're I not mean, meant she, to be together, she, right? That's what she does, essentially. Yeah. Which is also awesome. And then later, there's a scene with Violet that I feel like John may as well have turned to the camera and been like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because it's really, really sad. It's really sad. And it's, uh, it's, it's great. So, I guess... I'm not trying to convince anybody of anything. I'm not trying to sell anybody on any other perspective. And basically, I'm just trying to say that I think the theme, the running theme kind of in both books, especially when dealing with these like serial killers and these these people with all these complex pathologies is that at your your core, at your true nature, you're kind of always going to be slave to that. And for better or, or for worse. And I think that that, to me, is a very interesting concept that I'd like to see executed in the show. And I think that this is just me now putting my finger on why the John Sarah thing bothers me. Mm. It wasn't because I'm opposed to uh, to romance in a show, although I did say that I liked in the book the fact that they're all so platonic with each other because it gives you something else to focus on instead of, like, this tension. Yeah. But I think that they had that idea that John was always going to be kind of a bachelor and Sarah was always going to be uh, too independent and not need a man in her life, that that those two paths would never cross in that regard. However... I think that uh, I did say at the end of episode five that I think the reason this all happens is very complex. I think a lot of it is born out of the rescue of the baby. Mm -hmm. I think Sarah, I think everybody is riding this emotional wave, but Sarah more than anybody. Oh, yeah. She has not only lived up to her promise to the Senora, but also rescued an innocent child, also did it essentially on her own. In those final, you know, the home stretch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she also had her first major case open shut solved with with a positive outcome. And even Laszlo, the last person to heap praise on somebody, is the first one to say this is a tremendous achievement. Yeah. Like, she's feeling good. She's got a rush of, I think, adrenaline and and endorphins. And I think that... That's... Well, I'm not trying to say that this this moment, this uh, 
this night between her and John wasn't born out of an emotional and psychological place as well and a genuine attraction and and uh and comp- and care for each other but also was biologically driven as well i think there's 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 a rush there for both of them i think that's true but i also kind of it's weird i got a very different reading on a lot of those scenes at the end of the last episode because i feel like there's so much on sarah's face that is Libby got away. That is dread. Yeah, I agree too, and I think that's also part of it. There's yeah. there's a there's a big emotional release there mm-hmm. for sure. For and her. yeah, all all of the things you said that were good feelings and that dread that I'm noting on driving towards some type of cathartic emotional release. Yeah, fully makes sense. Yeah, but and I think that it, it in that moment she just was like, "This is this is what I need." Is like, I gotta I gotta bang one out, and John's here. Yep. He looks, he looks handsome. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he's my friend. Which, in a way, makes it even sadder, because it's like, it's not necessarily because it was John. It's because it was... Yeah, I think to a degree, yes, I think he was a man and he was available, but I think it's also because it was John. I think she has complicated feelings for John, but I think it's an amazing continuation of that role reversal that after this night together, she's kind of the one who's more like, mm. that was good. Uh Thanks. Yeah. And he's the one who's kind of like pouring his heart out to her. Yeah. And I feel like normally we would see the woman is the one who's more vulnerable, the one who's more like, this meant something. And the man would be like, yeah, that was great. Like, you are a pal. <laughs> and I will see you around. It's kind of <laughs> the way it would typically go. And I think it's awesome that yeah. Sarah's the one who's kind of like, hey, that was good. That was cool. Like, but it was probably a bad idea. But not probably even that. She's like, again. hey, that was cool. Also, Libby's still out there, man. We got. Yeah, go. I gotta get. I gotta get back to work. Yeah. So could you? Could you take off? <laughs> you know the way out. Yeah, totally. I think it's hilarious. Yeah. Also, the fact that, like you said, John is the one being oogled by the camera. Yeah. Is hilarious. Yeah, I thought it was good. It's. it's a I, very... I hope it was Luke Evans' idea. I hope that the the. <laughs> Production designer kept putting the sheet up, and he just kept pulling it down and be like, "No, <laughs> check it out." Hey, let me give you one. This one's for me. Those other ones were for you. I'm gonna give you this one. And he was probably going full buff, just taking the sheet all the way off, and they were like, ah, "Luke, you gotta meet us halfway." He's like, "All right, fine." He was actually on a green screen. He wasn't there. Like he was just. They had to green screen him onto the bed, which is why he's anyway. They shot it remotely. <laughs> they contained Luke Evans to his own green screen cell. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, anyway, that's the it's, very, it's a very complicated scene. I think it. I think it deserved a lot of analysis. It did. It did for sure. It's a complicated moment, and uh, it was awesome. Any thoughts about Libby uh, cleaning herself in the horse trough and just kind of going off on the dude? No, it's pretty good. Yeah. She is unraveling. Yeah, for sure. She was feeding out of the trough where the animals do, yep. as she should be. Yeah. All right. Act one. We see Polly's memory of going to see Houdini with Laszlo at some point in the past. In modern day, he sits in Laszlo's office, seemingly practicing another trick. Violet speaks with her father about John and her jealousy for Sarah. Hurst promises to bring John to heel, and there's already an article in the journal to do just that. Bitsy stops by John's to show Sarah the article, but also lets her know that the article has had the opposite of the intended effect. People are calling with new cases. Sarah's not done with Libby, though, even though the Linares baby has been found. 
She knows where the she knows where the baby was found was not set up as a nursery, so Libby must have had another place to keep the baby. Google. Patches up Libby's wound and wants to go out to do something fun, but Libby just wants her baby. Google suggests getting her a new one, perhaps the one she's been eyeing. Laszlo arrives back at the Institute to find Polly hanging in his office. He and Stevie cut Polly down and manage to get him breathing again. As Polly's carted away in an ambulance, Captain Doyle shows up to investigate Laszlo's supposed negligence. John and Sarah head back to last night's crime scene, but the police won't let them in. They see that it was next to the burnt-up boarding house that Gugu owns, so they break in and find Libby's nursery in the basement. John notes photos of four other dead babies on the wall, the nap child included, while Sarah notes a hairbrush from the Linares house, suggesting that Libby had been there prior to stealing Anna. The room was set up for another portrait, so they found baby Anna just in time. <clears throat> um, let's start with the Polly stuff. Uh, the Houdini flashback was was cool. I liked that. Yeah. Clearly something that would have been happening at the time. And going to see Houdini, I think, uh, as a kid would be a pretty formative moment, right? Yeah, it was cool. Um, but, so, we get this... Um, Polly survives this incident and, and later in the episode goes on to tell Laszlo that he was just trying to imitate Houdini. But, um, it it feels like to me, like, do, do you feel as though there's any part of Polly that like, did it seem to you like he was just trying to going to like pull a joke on Laszlo and it went wrong or something? Or what was your reading on that particular? Uh, I didn't really have a reading on it to be honest with you. I, I kind of took it at, Laszlo sums it up well later when he basically says, like, he thinks it was motivated. It was a potentially a, a cry for attention. Yeah. And he wasn't in a position to notice it. So, uh, we I mean, can... certainly doing it in Laszlo's office is pretty telling. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that I can we can say here now, so you did, you did inadvertently give away the idea that Laszlo was going to at least be in hock with his, his institute, which... I did. I didn't. And I sorry, everybody, but feel like I should apologize. But it, (laughs) the thing is it happens so suddenly in the show. Yeah. It's introduced and it happens so quickly that I was like, Oh wow. Is, can you remind me of what the, if, if we know anything about the inciting incident about what caused him to lose it in the book? In the book, it is Polly and it is, and he, he actually kills himself though. He doesn't survive. He hangs himself, but he I think he hangs himself in his dorm. He co- okay. he, he commits suicide. Like, it is suicide. Yeah. He wants to die, and he kills himself. Uh, and that is what the investigation is basically... Uh, the purpose of it in the book is to determine whether or not his suicide could have been prevented by Laszlo or by a different professional, mm. or whether or not Laszlo and his therapy and practices contributed to it yeah uh it's basically just to figure out what happened why did it happen and is laszlo accountable for it and that's why it's so devastating to him in the book because he cares so much for these kids and uh and gives himself fully to them like all of his like energy he has he devotes to trying to help these kids so it's heartbreaking that one of them not only would die but that it would be blamed on laszlo potentially yeah. uh so yeah, it when I had texted you saying I thought it would carry I so when they started introducing Polly in the show mm. and in a in a larger and larger capacity, I was like, 
I was thinking that this was going to happen at the very end of season two uh, and season three would be about the fallout and, and the potentially be somewhat of like a courtroom drama while this goes on or maybe use Laszlo's absence from the Institute as a backdrop for what other, whatever case they bring to the table next. Yeah. I truly don't know what to expect now, especially by the midpoint of this episode. So, um, yeah, but yeah. I was surprised Polly survived given the, the events of the book. Yeah. Maybe they've just decided that they've killed enough babies so far in the show and that they shouldn't take it. <laughs> yeah but yeah the scene where laszlo runs in there discovers his i was like i was so well done it was uh daniel brule is just so fantastic yeah it really felt like like book laszlo come to life so it was uh it was terrific yeah i completely agree um violet speaking with hearst about sarah um i really liked this is the first scene where i've like liked violet yeah i agree her... You, you, well, you you actually can sympathize with her. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can sympathize with her, and not only that, but, like, she even, like, she gives it to Hurst a bit. Because she's, like, is is Sarah to John what my mother was to you? And, yeah. And kind of, like, uh, she's one of the few people that can probably stand up to William Randolph Hurst at that point in time. And, sure. and she seems to do it here, and I, and I thought that was very good. Um, But, yeah. Yeah. I liked it a lot. I actually was like, all right, like I kind of could root for her a little bit. Yeah. She wasn't, you realize she's not like, she was no longer just the other woman. She's the woman. Like mm-hmm. she's supposed to be the only one. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then Hearst's article about Sarah, I don't really like, I paused the frame and started reading it and I don't really fully understand exactly what was meant to be like a smear on Sarah. Obviously, the fact that Libby still gets away is is a bad thing, but overall, it feels like a pretty like pretty big whiff of a hit piece on somebody. <laughs> yeah, I think so. that's part of the hilarious bumbling charm of him and Burns together is that they underestimate her and the reception of her. Yeah, that's fair. And maybe like Hurst's like Hurst might have the ability to wield this big hammer against like the political situation, but the minute that he tries to like take it out on another like singular person, it's not so he's not so good at it. I think mm-hmm. it's interesting. Well, as you know, no 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 such thing as bad press, is that the saying? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're just calling attention to her. Yep. Yep. And the fact that she succeeded in her case, right? Mm-hmm. Her case wasn't to find Libby. Her case was to get the baby. So, yep. Um, Gugu is saying that Libby, he's he wants to get Libby the baby that she's been eyeing was absolutely terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the discovery of Libby's room or the the nursery is uh, also once again another great moment of like. The show is extremely dark in, like, uh, from a light perspective of, like, I don't think you could watch it in broad daylight on a television, probably, with any windows that are not covered. But um, just the atmosphere that they set and the idea that this, like, room that she had was in this burnt-down boarding house, just, they pulled it off really well, and I think it just works great, so. That's what I like about it. The it is really dark, but I can I can tell where things are. 
Yeah. Like the stuff that's lit is lit so well that it feels like a dark space with like like hot spots. There was uh, Oh, it was the scene where Libby was sitting at the table with the dead matron and mm. Sarah was in the foreground. And the way that scene was lit was awesome because it reminded me of that. It was all very cool looking. Like it was all almost kind of grayscale. Except where Libby was sitting, she had like this warm light on her face that was like almost sort of reddish. And just that little detail, like it jumped out to me right away that I was like, she's cast in like this kind of reddish hellish light. Yeah. And it reminded me of a lot of these scenes where like certain little points are lit to draw your eye to them. And uh, just kind of just enough light to showcase the nightmare fuel that that place is. And the moment where Sarah sees the cage and she realizes like she was caging them. I just was like, ugh. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So sad. Uh, Any other thoughts on Act 1? No. When John starts breaking the door down with the crowbar, I was like, where did he get that crowbar from? Did he just, did he bring it with him? Did Sarah have it on her, actually? Uh, Yeah, I was surprised Sarah wasn't the one to crowbar (laughs) the door open. (laughs) All right, Act 2. Laszlo apologizes to a sleeping Polly and then vents to Karen Stratton that he feels as though he's been removed, he's removed Polly from reality. Karen hypothesizes that the absence of wonder that Laszlo brought to Polly's life may turn people into those like Libby Hatch. John has been calling Laszlo to bring him to the new crime scene, but Laszlo hasn't answered. Sarah finds a brush with a family crest on it, potentially signifying a new victim. Libby burns herself on an iron and Gugu stops her. She's clearly mourning. Her chest hurts and she has Gugu breastfeed to help. When Laszlo arrives at his institute to find Dr. Marco will be the one investigating his competency. Marco also informs Laszlo that he's to stop all duties as an alienist while the investigation is in progress. Don almost breaks bad news to Violet, but her eagerness to marry him stops him in his tracks. And as John and Libby uncover the family crest from the hairbrush at the Times, Libby has already taken a baby from a stroller with that very same crest. The baby is a Vanderbilt baby. Um, this scene with Laszlo and Karen was good. It yep. took place outside of that bar, so it didn't bother me as much. For I don't know <laughs> what it is about that bar for some reason, but um, just kind of the big concepts that they talk about, I think, I think are good, and they they hit home well. And Laszlo, it's nice to see Laszlo being receptive to somebody else's ideas. Yeah, completely. Yeah, which is uh, uh, the same thing that you were saying last episode, but yeah, it certainly comes through in this scene. I still have to cut the rom com trailer. <laughs> yeah. For them, the meat cute. <laughs> um, Libby and Gugu, I don't know if this is the time to talk about it or not, but it's just a very strange dynamic, and I don't really know what else I have to say about that. Yeah, not till Laszlo puts a name on it. Yeah. And uh, that already happened? Oh, that's in the scene. That's in this scene, isn't it, with Karen? No, it's later on in this episode, so we'll get okay. there. Okay. Um. Dr. Marco being the one in charge of the investigation, I think, is uh, Man, dastardly. As and... soon as he walked into the room, I was just like, no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Plus, Burns is in the background at like the bookcase, I think, right? Just kind yeah, of just looking l- around. Loitering. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Um, interesting that just kind of like, I don't know, the you you would hope that there would it would be down to more than just that one person to do the investigation right but at the same time like obviously the whole board is going to have to like weigh in on it but yeah i i love that little jab he has where he's like mm, you could convene them for an appeal but you know how hard it is to get everybody's away for the summer so yeah. sorry man 
and Laszlo firing back with like, are you, are you going to bring your objectivity to this? Yes. Investigation was a great line. Yeah, it was very good. Yeah. I, I, I think it'll be interesting to see where that goes. I don't know if, um, do do you, do you get an answer for the Institute stuff in the book? You don't have to say anything about it, but like, does it come, does, does the Institute's closure come to a head by the end of the story? Yes. Okay. All right. So we'll see how that plays out here. We at least have an avenue for how it'll play out by the end of the episode. But um, we spoke a little bit about John and Violet. The one thing that I didn't necessarily like about Violet here is that she kind of leans into it a lot, too. Like, she doesn't, she knows that she's being mistreated, you know, which, you know, in modern times, I think a man hanging out with a woman is not quite as big of a red flag as it would have been in the 1890s, right? Oh, you mean like John hanging out with Sarah? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. Like, it, it, I, I feel like nowadays it's a little bit more accepted, but maybe not necessarily. Like, it was particularly brutal back in the 1890s to have oh, somebody, for sure. to have your betrothed <clears throat> with another, spotted with another woman all the time, right? Yes. But her whole speech about, like, marrying you will give me a place to belong to, I think, extremely sad, for one, but also, like... If, very valid i think and and just kind of you can see that it kind of takes john aback a little bit and stops him from probably stops him from sharing what he was going to share but i guess we don't know for sure you could tell he's never even thought about it from her point of view like that before yeah and neither have i neither have probably most viewers because we're used to seeing her as sort of the sort of an antagonist yeah but her feelings are are certainly really valid and you start to think more about her what her life must have been like growing up yeah and how this woman now who i don't even know how old she's supposed to be but uh has spent her entire life living this reality and even in polite society it's almost even worse because nobody will say it but they're all looking down on you the same way they all talking about it yeah the way they're all looking down on john at the engagement party and her behavior at the engagement party is almost i don't want to say forgivable but at least understandable when you realize she's just trying to fit. She's just trying to fit in and be accepted and make the jokes and go along with the show because for once she is the center of attention for a good reason. And somebody else is getting shit on instead of her. Yeah. So yeah, it's sad. I mean, I, I, it was, I thought it was wonderful. Like it, it brought some serious unexpected depth to not only her, but her and John's relationship and also John and Sarah's tryst. Because mm-hmm. now I realize, like, just how bad it was. And like I said, John kind of is like, uh, whoops. <laughs> I guess I'm just hoping that John does get his comeuppance and and a, like a, like from from Violet even like yeah. Well, what's extra gross too is she even kind of says to her dad in that scene with him where she's like, I know how like how men like you and in your position are. Like she's basically saying like, I know it's essentially socially acceptable for you to have flings with women. Yeah. Yeah. That's what you guys do. And she even implies that she's willing to let John, she's willing to understand when John inevitably does it, but she's like, but we haven't even started our life. Yeah. Can we be married for at least a little while before he starts banging other chicks? (laughs) It's so sad. man. Accepted that he will grow bored of her. at some Yeah. This poor woman like that. She thinks that's okay. Yeah. Uh, Oh, Yeah. Brutal. So yeah, and and more clearly feels guilty about it. Like I 
I don't think I don't think more in the show or even necessarily the book would be the type that once married would be like, yeah, I'm going to go. Yeah. Go have a little side piece. Why not? Like he just, he seems to feel pretty bad about that. So as he should. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually for once pretty invested in the John Violet dynamic and I want to see what happens next. That's good. That's good. Not and I, like, I, I like her more now. Like I like her a lot more. Yeah. I kind of, I'm kind of in her corner a little bit. It's interesting that they were able to pull that off in like it literally feels like just this episode where yeah, it's like definitely yeah so that's that's awesome yeah I mean she still is kind of kind of daffy and simple but even John seems to almost have had a a beat of like a little more respect for her a little more understanding and it makes you wonder why he was drawn to her in the first place, but yeah. it almost maybe reinforces it that there's, there is more to her there than we necessarily are treated to. Yeah. And maybe she wasn't so far off in, in what she said to Laszlo and perhaps he was even more wrong than we thought. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there, there was also some good detective work in this episode. The, the kind of recognizing the family crest on the hairbrush from Sarah and then matching yep. it to, to a Vanderbilt, wedding mm-hmm. invite i believe i think uh i think was quite quite good and um I, so i like the detective work side of it but then like libby taking the baby in broad daylight being bolder than ever before probably you know we know that baby anna at least was stolen in the middle of the night we know that the nap baby was stolen in the middle of the night um but See for that. her to like strike out and be like i'm just gonna take this baby in the middle of the park in the day Oh, I loved it. Uh, yeah. The way that the camera, the camera work and the blocking obscure the actual moment of abduction was so amazing. Yeah. Uh, so in the book, that's the way Anna is kidnapped is in the middle of the park in the, the middle of the day. Uh, straight up dangerous, like like risky, extremely risky behavior, which is of interest, interesting note to Laszlo and, and the team, because they're like, that was that was crazy. Like only yeah. a crazy person would. Or someone motivated by desperation. What's bigger yet is that Libby in the book actually knocks out the Signora with like a piece of pipe. Uh. Like she actually knocks her unconscious, then steals the baby and flees. Hmm. Like it's nuts. It's yeah. it's bold. Very. So the, this scene was definitely like I was like, okay, this is pretty pretty satisfying to see because it's not the stealthy work of like a cat burglar. It's like somebody striking out and getting really really bold with their process. Yeah, well, and I, and I think, like, the idea that she's been stealing things from these houses before she's even, like, gone to take the baby. Uh, it, like, you see that she's very bold, but, like, it's taking it to another level when Definitely. you steal a baby in broad daylight, right? Yeah, it's the kind of thing where, like, I think on, like, Dexter, it's the kind of thing where he would know where someone's MO changes and he's like, uh-oh, something's changing in them. Yeah, which exactly. Which can, can only be bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Laszlo saying that she would only get more unpredictable as the Linares baby kind of fell out of favor with her and that type of thing. It's the same kind of situation, I guess. Yep. Um, and then the memento boxes for the kids, I thought was pretty, pretty sad. But then also I think Marcus comments that there's a brooch that has some hair in it from, from a baby and it doesn't seem to be from any of the other four. So I'm assuming that's probably one of, like Libby's actual child or something like that. So it remains to be seen where they go with, with her past. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. There's some pretty tantalizing stuff later in this episode. So, um. uh, 
is it a Vander is a, is a Vanderbilt baby abducted? Are the Vanderbilts in the book at all? That's the question I mean to ask you. They are, but not like this. Interesting. Okay. All right. Act three. The Duster stopped by Cyrus's to rough up Joanna, but Cyrus arrives in time to stop it from going any further. Sarah and John's efforts to contact the Vanderbilts are interrupted when a Vanderbilt sends for her. Cornelius Vanderbilt has enlisted Hearst and Burns' help, as well as Pinkerton's instead of the New York police, to keep it out of the news and prevent a ransom. Sarah arrives and informs Vanderbilt that she already knows that his grandchild has been taken due to her investigative work earlier. She accepts his case on two conditions. Laszlo gets reinstated as an alienist, and ex-commissioner Burns works for her on the case and not vice versa. Laszlo reports to John and Sarah that Polly was just trying to emulate Houdini, but he suspects otherwise. He's not confident that Vanderbilt will be able to get him reinstated. Um, not totally sure why the Dusters were in there. I don't know if you have any inkling of them. Like, I guess Joanna, like, helped, but honestly, I don't know. I guess that's the one thing that I feel like the show still doesn't do extremely well, is that I feel like those dog fights were just out front of Cyrus's bar. Like, yeah, geographically, I, I don't really, so I don't even really feel like Joanna did that much other than be like, hey, look over there, but... Yeah, I think just somebody in their organization connected the dots that they were directing Sarah and company towards them, so... yeah. They've seen John and Sarah and Laszlo around, yeah. Um, I liked the scene of the Vanderbilt office being, like, the the, the war room being made up. This yeah, person that's a good way to put in, it. Bringing in typewriters, it reminded me of, like, you know, the FBI shows up to set up their their investigation room, their base camp for some new investigation, and they bring all these computers with them, but in this case it's typewriters and rotary phones and... Things of that nature. I, I really liked that kind of setup for everything. Um, and I like that Burns and Hearst kind of get to be the butt of the joke here in a yep. couple instances. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, Vanderbilt is definitely like, it's a big one. That's a big deal. <laughs> yeah. It's almost kind of cartoonish <laughs> that they have their war room set up in his place and that he's kind of like, who are you? I like you. You two are assholes. Like it's really <laughs> yeah. funny. Yeah, no, it's funny. It's almost like um uh the dynamic between Hearst and Vanderbilt still even like Vanderbilt's like the it's Qui-Gon Jinn's there's always a bigger fish, right? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Like Hearst is rich, but then Vanderbilt shows up and he's richer and and that kind of old money just Yeah, I'm trying to find out right now how much Okay, so yeah, that's a great way to put it because yeah, it's like what I was saying. Like more comes from money. We were talking about more being at the dinner. More comes from money. A rich guy, and then there's Hearst looking down on him. You're like, you're poor. Get out of my face. <laughs> and now you've got Vanderbilt. So uh, Hearst net worth equivalent to today, uh, thirty point six billion in today's dollars. Okay, at the time, three point one one billion. Vanderbilt uh in twenty ten dollars a hundred and eighty five billion. Jesus. <laughs> this guy would buy and sell Hearst multiple times. <laughs> yeah, it's the economy of scale on these things is interesting to me because it's like once you get above a millionaire, I don't really understand what it is anymore, right? 
Yeah, I'm so. trying to find J.P. Morgan because he's in the first book and obviously yeah. the first season. And he's kind of the one at the, at the time where they're like, dude is absurdly rich. Uh, Fortune estimated at only $118 million, which is still a ton of money. But yeah. back then, so less than both of those two men. But still, $118 million in 18-whatever is infinite wealth, still, basically. Yeah, that's a lot so, of money. Yeah, interesting. So, yeah, Vanderbilt rolls through, puts his dick on the table. (laughs) Everything changes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't serve this function in the book, but it's pretty funny for the show. It's kind of one of those moments where you're like, you know, this guy was probably a terrible person. Yep. But in the show, he's somehow this deus ex machina of like, (laughs) I have all the money and influence in the world. What do you need? Yeah. What What are your demands? Only those two? No problem. Yeah, and I I like the fact that, like, I don't know, like, you see Burns and Hurst have this, like, two-man routine of, like, we're gonna, we're gonna walk in here, we're gonna take this Sarah Howard down, like, we know that she's gonna be on the forefront of Vanderbilt's mind if he's read the newspaper, but we're we're the men for this job and and i think i think it's kind of interesting to kind of watch their comedy bit where they're like well you know she wouldn't be able to walk around these streets and that's where she probably where libby probably is and all this stuff and it's just like Mm -hmm. but um the other thing that i liked to take note of is vanderbilt calls on the pinkertons and burns and hearst to help out and not the police and that was something that they wanted to demonize Linares for, mm-hmm. for for not going to the police in any way. But it just reminds me of that tweet that's been passed around of people asking what's what's uh, what's something that uh, what's something that gets applauded if you're rich, but uh, made fun of if you're poor or something like that. And it's like having having someone else raise your children and like all kinds of other like interesting weird things like that so i thought it was kind of a good echo of a sentiment that's being passed around today so this is interesting uh i think cornelius vanderbilt so the cornelius vanderbilt who built the fortune essentially died in 1877 Hmm. and cornelius vanderbilt the second would have been alive he died in 1899 but he was much younger looking. Cornelius Vanderbilt III, and that's not him. Hmm, I wonder if they took some liberties with Cornelius Vanderbilt's actual life. Because the photos of him, the OG Van- Cornelius Vanderbilt, are essentially the guy from the show. So I wonder if they just... Kind of moved it around a little bit. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. It's a little <laughs> sad because of how... Well, it's weird for Caleb Carr is what I'm more what yeah. I'm thinking. Uh, there was another Cornelius Vanderbilt and he died in 1882, his, his elder son. Hmm. <laughs> anyway, interesting. See, yeah. this is why you don't research real stuff. Cause you ruin it for yourself. <laughs> the alienist is canceled. <clears throat> anyway. Anyway, any anyway. other thoughts on, uh, on any of that stuff? And no, I like your description of the war room. I think it, it, that's always a fun point in stories when like the team really is like, all right, like. We're building all these allies and stuff, and now we're able to get to it, and uh, that's where they're at now, which is cool. Yeah. Um, Sarah's conditions, I, like, fist-pumped when she got, when she's like, I I was like, I know what's going to come out of her mouth before she even says any of it, and and I was was very happy. With Laszlo? 
that well that not only was she trying to help laszlo but also like oh. burns over there yeah he's not gonna fuck with my investigation yeah so but, La- you know, he's still gonna try <laughs> of course sarah in the show has so much more agency and like identity and she's so much deeper of a character that it's it's awesome. Like it's really really an improvement. And I, as much as I like Sarah in the book, she's she's different for sure. She's kind of her own character. But in the show, she's she's the one bailing the boys out of trouble. Yeah, and it's great. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's great. Um, Laszlo not being convinced that Vanderbilt can pull off his reinstatement. I feel like. Um, Vanderbilt could probably get whatever he wants. Probably. So, it seems like a pretty plausible way to to getting his institute back. But we shall see, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, this act ends with Sarah saying, let us begin with what we know. Which, once again, felt like a great like end of a chapter or something like that that would have been in the book. Definitely. But Alright, act four. John, Sarah, and Laszlo try to understand what they know about Libby. Sarah shares that Libby told her about her father's very public suicide hanging from a bridge. John theorizes that this would have been reported on, so he heads to take a look at the New York Times archives and requests Sarah to join him. Before she does, Sarah tells Laszlo about Google and Libby's very public nursing sex. Laszlo dissects this with Karen Stratton, theorizing that it is a fetish meant to reduce Libby, but Karen postulates that maybe Libby would also derive pleasure from this. Burns complains to Hearst that Sarah is devouring uh, uh, devaluing his career. Wow. But Hearst reminds Burns that Vanderbilt should, would be a good person to have in your favor. Sarah finds an article about a hanging suicide on the Brooklyn Bridge. It cites uh, Mallory and Elizabeth, uh, Mallory and Elspeth Hunter as survivors of the victim. Elspeth Hunter matches the initials of E.H. from the toy store, and they theorize Libby may be headed to Brooklyn with her new baby. Um, it It's interesting to me that John starts off this act kind of being like what do we even know about libby because it's true like they don't really know that much about her who she is as a person right right and whatever they think they know is likely not accurate yeah so i i think it's like they literally once again a nice featuring of the chalkboard mm-hmm. although it is john writing on it so slap the chalk out of his hand but <laughs> um starting like being back i'm like all right we got to start back at the drawing board because we don't have any ideas of like how to figure this out exactly yet right mm-hmm. although it's interesting to me that they seem to be kind of glossing over like i don't know how much they're going to like interview the woman who was there with the baby at the time because we know it's not the mother it was like a vanderbilt servant or something who knows yeah um the nanny that they hired but interesting to see how this investigation continues um, this is where Laszlo calls the, yes. the nursing thing a fetish. And and I think it's interesting that Karen kind of, it's, it sounds to me like at least the definition of fetish at the time had very much to do with like the idea of a man tearing down a woman and degrading a woman. And that's what Laszlo puts forth. But, and Karen seems to agree with that definition, but then also kind of pulls the nursing thing out of the fetish category which i don't really know how that works with today's definitions of things but once again a good scene of karen kind of having insight that laszlo would have never even considered yep in in being a man so i think that was pretty good yeah i thought it was fascinating their conversation actually their their breakdown of of what 
classifies as a fetish, I thought was very interesting and something I had never thought about before in that context. Yeah, absolutely. I do like that Laszlo's instinct is to credit the initiation and pleasure of the fetish to the man Mm -hmm. and the control in the situation to the man. And Karen is quick to flip the script and say, not necessarily, maybe, but also maybe this. And Laszlo being like, hmm. Well, and in everything we've seen, it's not necessarily like it's it's Google. taking what he wants, but it's rather Libby offering it to him either as a reward or in service to herself to help her pain or yeah. And I think that's a that's the important distinction in the in the book. It's definitely everyone's afraid of Gugu, and they know he's the leader, and it it seems I'm sure outwardly like he's the one that she's Gugu's girl is kind of how it's put when rather. He's her her tool, tool. basically. Exactly, yeah. yeah, her toy. And it's yeah. uh it's they do seem to have a slightly deeper relationship than that in the show. I'm not sure yet because I'm sure she's gonna cast him off at the first chance she gets, but they there does seem to be a little bit more of a symbiosis there than there is in the book. Yeah, I, and and then like I hesitated saying the word tool in the last episode because I don't really feel like it's completely there like it's not completely an apt description as of yet but yeah like you said like the 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 her ability to start flipping the switch on gugu i think is something that happens by the end of this episode where she you know slaps him when he starts joking about the baby wanting to nurse her or whatever Mm -hmm. that type of thing so it, it it starts it's feeling like we're gonna start seeing that side of the relationship a little bit more and might come to understand her as like She's the one pulling the strings, yep. where it's just implied kind of at the moment. Which is interesting because it's setting up this cool parallel. I, I wish they were further with Libby in that regard now because we're watching Sarah get to that point. Mm. And I would like to see Libby reach that point too. And the show is, it feels like it's building towards ultimately like Sarah, yeah. Sarah versus Libby and watching these two women control their respective universes and wield this power uh and and kind of be at the top of their food chain. Yeah, and start like trying to outwit each other and and things of that nature. Which yeah, is certainly. awesome, and not really the way it goes down in the book. Libby is, you know, immensely powerful in the book, and and through all of her intelligence and that. But Sarah doesn't really reach that same point in the book. Hmm. It's more a team effort. But in the show, it's cool that Sarah is really the one leading the charge. She's the one who recognizes Libby's still a threat. She realizes there's still a problem. She's the one who says the case isn't over. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, and then Act 5, Libby and Gugu pack up and head out to a new hiding spot. Laszlo, John, and Sarah share their theory about Libby heading back to Brooklyn as a skeptical Vanderbilt uh, to a skeptical Vanderbilt and Burns. Libby shows the Vanderbilt baby the Brooklyn Bridge from a precarious perch atop a roof. She mentions that her father's suicide wasn't a typical strangling by noose, but actually a snapped neck. I forgot to talk about the... Uh, you, you mentioned in our last episode about the idea that they reused a lot of footage. The scene where mm-hmm. Sarah's recalling her experience with Libby, I think is yeah. kind of what you, like, I, I, I would almost think for a show that knows it's going to be eight episodes, I would think you'd realize that it's maybe not necessary to do that. Kind of yeah. As you were saying. That but. one I was a little more okay with only because Sarah was re-examining the mm. interaction 
Okay. So like where I felt like the the scenes of the murder were just like for the audience's benefit. I feel like this was almost more for Sarah's benefit. But I agree with what you're saying. It was a little long. Yeah. It would no. have it would have almost been cooler to have seen the same scene but reshot from a different angle. Like, yeah, that's sort true. of sort of an ob- a more objective uh, take on it. Even with like even uh, well, no, I was gonna say performance changes. Like uh, I don't know if you know that. Mm. That thing with Christian Bale and American Psycho, where they had uh, no, it was Willem Dafoe, where they have they're interviewing Willem Dafoe yeah. as if the different possibilities of what he knows against Christian Bale's character. Yeah, that see but, something like that, or even showing the Sarah, showing the two of them having lunch, but having third person Sarah walking around and like taking yeah. it in and realizing that. Maybe coming to the realization that Libby was playing her the whole time would have been yeah. cool. But anyway, what what we got was fine. But I agree, yeah, it's a little too flashbacky. Yeah, no, and and I think it was I think it was good and just kind of Laszlo and John helping her kind of reason through it and being like, hey, she probably shared something with you that would be useful and 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 you know she she clearly won you over somehow. And yeah. she you, did you that. let your guard you of all people let your guard down. Yeah. Yes. And it's not because you're weak, but because she's strong, right? Because she knows what she was doing and that's what she wanted to do. I think that was good. Um I do like that John is incidentally getting better at this as well. Just by being around her and Laszlo, he's 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 getting a little bit better at detected <laughs> d- detection. He doesn't just sit there to serve as like the oh that's poppycock and yeah just yeah exactly he's everything. more invested too which is yeah. cool yeah um the yeah and the reveal of Elspeth Hunter mm. as the name um maybe I don't want to ask you this but you mentioned uh in the bookends that Stevie brings up a name is huh. it Libby or Elspeth is it one of those two or do you want yeah. me yes okay all right. <laughs> Yeah. No, I was just kind of curious of like, because I, I don't know, I guess part of me was kind of like, what if there's a third person that comes out of nowhere, but I uh, don't know, you know. No, it's, it is this individual. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, that's good. Good to know. Good confirmation. Um. But yeah, catching back up to where we were in Act 5, because I skipped over things in Act 4. Um. There's not a ton that happens here, just kind of them... I think it's interesting that them wanting to retrace Libby's, like, the way that um, Vanderbilt looks at it, he's like, what does looking at her roots have anything to do with what's going to happen with her now? Yeah. And, uh, but I feel like the show does a good job of keeping you on the side of the protagonists and being like, they logically got here in a lot of ways, and it's all pointing to make sense, right? Mm-hmm. So, I thought that was nice. And, yeah. um... If anything, it feels like they're doing this a little too late. I know they've they've just yeah they've, they've been behind the ball with Libby the whole time. Well, and, and not and it's it's interesting because they're I think it like it they were less focused on the person doing the taking rather than the fact that there's a baby that's gone right, and I think they were focusing on the baby and that made sense. It does make sense, and that that I guess is one of the differences between this and the Alienist and and Beecham. They're they're pretty immediately trying to come up with a profile for who the killer is, and in this one, they're just simply trying to get this baby back. But I think I think it's definitely a different degree of motivation because it's an infant. 
Yeah. There's something about yeah. that where like there's a there's a clock on an infant that doesn't exist on any other stage of life. Yeah. Shit, I wasn't even thinking it while I was watching it. I was like, babies have to eat constantly. Like, yeah. they have to eat like every three hours. I don't know how old Anna's supposed to be, but she's tiny still. Like, she's yeah. a little, she's a baby. And I was like, this baby needs to eat all the time. Like, I don't feel like, I feel like, I mean, I guess that's part of it is Libby is obviously neglecting mm-hmm. these babies. And that's part of the reason they're crying all the time. And it just is a continuation of this cycle. But it just, I was like, man, that babies eat a lot. Yeah. <laughs> they eat <Yeah>. often. <laughs> um, the final moment of the episode with Libby kind of standing over the the edge of the roof and, and looking at the Brooklyn Bridge where her father killed himself. So they're um, in Brooklyn at this point, just sleeping on a roof. I don't know if they're in Brooklyn or still headed to Brooklyn. I don't know why they're sleeping on a roof. With really. a bunch of other people. Yeah, I don't know either. That was, that I was, I kind of raised an eyebrow there. Like, what's going on here? Yeah. So I, I don't really know if there's a whole, like, if there's a, if there's any precedent for, like, sl- people sleeping on roofs at that point in time in Pro- New York. Probably in, the, like, the summer. It might be so hot in the buildings that people would sleep. Like, the residents, the tenants of the building might have slept on the roof if it was cooler. I don't know. You'd think a roof would be pretty hot, though. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I just typed into Google here in uh, Google. Uh, 1890s people sleeping on roofs. And the there's a uh, Wikipedia article titled 1896 Eastern North America Heat Wave. Ah. Yeah, it mentions here that the New York City Public Works Commissioner ordered that his workers' shifts be modified so they would not be working during midday, and he had fire hydrants open to cool people on the street. Theodore Roosevelt, then New York City Police Commissioner, distributed free ice from local police stations. Accidental deaths from people falling off the roofs they were sleeping on. The New York City Parks Department allowed people to sleep in parks overnight. Wow. So Google even mentioned something about a girl falling off of a roof yeah. while sleeping. So it's it feels like they're kind of calling back to that. But interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It it's interesting. Like I never even thought of the idea that yeah, like the people in the apartment buildings below would have like gone out to the roof because it's way cooler than staying in this third story of a building or yeah. something of that nature. So interesting historical context. But what did you think about Libby's um speech about her dad like Uh, so i can let me let me read it for you you see my handsome boy isn't she beautiful it took a lot of very brave men to build that bridge the bigger that bridge got the they just felt smaller and smaller most nooses usually strangle a man not my papa his neck snapped right in two that's right little boy one minute you're here and then snap you're dead right in the blink of an eye um yeah pretty uh Pretty, pretty sick. <laughs> pretty dark monologue, but also like I'm trying to put myself in Laszlo's shoes and kind of be like, does she, does she look up for her, look up to her father for his death in some weird way? Like, is it like he was special? He was special, or like, um, it took more than just strangling to kill him, or something, or, mm. um. Yeah, I, I don't I don't necessarily know, but also just kind of like so it sounds like he was probably somebody who worked on the bridge, right? Yeah. And as they built the bridge, he he felt smaller and and something about it ended up driving him to kill himself it seems, but um no. 
there's dots there. I'm just not connecting them yet. Yeah, so. same. This is all pretty new territory, so. Okay. I agree with you there. All right. Any other thoughts on this episode? The only other thing I was going to bring up, there was something in the last episode I forgot to talk about, was um, there was this really weird insert of a CG printing press. Did you notice it at all? I didn't. I I, I miss a lot. So when I'm watching any of these like on my phone, yeah, I, I miss certain stuff, but... I'm fairly, I'm like 98% sure it was CG. And probably. It looked so bad. Yeah, probably. <laughs> it's like, was it, wait, was it when they were printing the papers with Sarah or um, with uh, Libby's likeness on it? Yes. Okay. It was right before that change. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, I applaud the idea, but I feel like eh, it was, didn't it need was it. Pretty dodgy. It was so short and I don't know. It just looked really bad. But anyway, it's funny. Yeah, just just leave it out. Yeah, yeah. It could you could have just shown one of those shots of the newspaper the spinning, spinning towards the camera. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was just thinking. Was one of those spinning newspaper transition. <laughs> yep, and then a little boy popping into frame, going extra, extra, read all about it. Yep, yep. All right. Yeah, we Once should be again. writing the show. Yeah, obviously, we absolutely should. Didn't some someone criticized us for that in one of these shows? They were like, "You guys, it's clear why you're not writing the show or something." It was either this show or the Westworld that I'm. I think that was probably Westworld. I don't know. It could have been Preacher too. I don't know. The list of targets is huge. I think all of our discussions on the Alienist have been improvements and <laughs> would only make things better. So nobody would ever say that. Especially about. more with a pack of cigarettes in his mouth. Oh, without a doubt. I still need to see that at some point. It's going to be like, Luke Evans is going to be like, I'm on Cameo. And then I'm going to be like, all right, I'll send you double your rate to go buy a carton of cigarettes and stuff them all in your mouth. <laughs> oh my God. It'd be so good. And then you got to say goo goo while you're doing it. <laughs> oh man, that'll be the day. Oh boy. Well, um... Yeah, we'll continue the podcast just on a quest to get Luke Evans to put all the cigarettes in his mouth. How about that? I'm in. Once again, you can find more episodes of our podcast on TheAlienist.tv. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play Podcasts. You can email us at feedback at TheAlienist.tv to tell us what you think of our podcast and share your thoughts on TNT's The Alienist so we can read them on our show. Send us corrections, observations, or anything regarding The Alienist or our podcast. Check out our other stuff at MidwestPodcastNetwork.com. Go listen to those podcasts. There's some great listening. And our theme music is the song Division by Kevin McLeod. It is being used under our Attribution Creative Commons license. That's it for this episode. We can't wait to see what the finale, the two-hour finale of The Alienist brings only four weeks later from when it started. (laughs) But until then, we will see you at the chalkboard.